0: Don't know as much about this disease entity as we'd like to, and we
1: we are not gonna be perfect. It's been shown that psychiatrists are no better than emergency physicians in predicting this. There's no there's no science to this. If we only understood what we were talking about, we'd be
0: dangerous. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Risk Management Monthly for the month of November 2018 is now on the air. And let me just tell you, if you don't have your track shoes on, put them on because we've got such good guests and so much information this month. Rick, I'm kind of blown away
1: by this. Would you like to introduce our guests for everybody? Yeah, actually, we usually don't have two guests on. Greg Moore, MD, JD, has been on multiple times in the past. Uh, but we also have Greg daughter, uh, Greg's daughter, Malia, and they are both in the same room. Greg is visiting her in Fort Hood, Texas, uh, where he. but Greg's normally up in s- Seattle. But uh, at, uh, what base are you at there, Greg? Madigan, Army yeah, Madigan. Madigan. Madigan, right, 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 right. So, uh, Malia, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, well, I uh, trained in emergency medicine, uh, followed in my dad's footsteps and have developed quite an interest in the medical legal stuff as well. So I like father, like daughter, and I've just, um, been working here at Fort Hood. I'm active duty in the military here.
0: Are you an, are you a JD as well at this point? Not yet. Soo- tra- it, it sounds like we may have a fledgling beginning lawyer here, but that's all right. We'll let her get by with this. By the way, I have visited both of your bases. Um, many years ago, I when it was the Tri-Services meeting for emergency medicine, we held it at um, at Fort Hood, Texas. And, um, it, which is by the way, or was at that time, the largest armor base in the free world. Now the Soviets had a bigger one, but you got to remember in those days, they could fire anything anywhere to the East and it wouldn't hit anything because they got nothing <laughs> in the middle of it. But uh, I asked the, uh, Sergeant who was taking me around. I said, uh, how big is this base? And he says, sir, it's 71 miles long. And I can't remember how wide it was. And I said, "Why is that?" He says, "Because when you miss with a with a missile off a tank, it's got to go somewhere." <laughs> and, it's uh, true. We
2: have plenty of space here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> lots of space, lots of rattlesnakes, and um, anyway, I, I'm sure you're getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, valuable experience. And uh, I've also been to Madigan to do the residency, and uh, so thank you
1: both for your service. It's our pleasure. Uh, Listen, uh, Greg Moore, uh, this is going to be hard with Greg, 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 you know, kind of thing. But Greg Moore basically and Malia came up with this outline where where we can go through here. Greg, uh, before we got on the air, you uh, commented, uh, Greg Henry commented that there's enough here for like several days. But I think that we can move through it smartly and cover a lot of stuff for our listeners. I think Malia is going to do the first... uh, series uh here regarding uh psychiatric evaluations which I should tell you we have talked about it in the past where they got into this big thing with the feds that basically said um mtala requires a psychiatrist to see people in the emergency department and and uh that was that was kind of like a game changer it only affected one hospital but it's kind of one of those things where it may be a virus could spread around, spread out. So why don't you guys take off on that paper?
3: Do you need sure. to do a disclaimer first?
2: Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'm going to go ahead and get started, but, um, I do need to just let everyone know that, um, I need to give a brief disclaimer, which that any views or opinions uh, expressed here are solely my own and don't represent any policies of the U.S. government um, or the U.S. Army or the DoD. Um, And with that, let's get started. So I'm going to we're going to kind of generally go on the theme of a lot of psychiatric and violent type patients. Um, And our first uh, section here that we're going to discuss are a couple cases where uh, emergency physicians have tiptoed into the realm of psychiatry. So. Our first case here is uh, called Roe versus Roe, and it's out of California. And in this uh, case, a schizophrenic who was new to the area uh, was told by his clinic to go get meds because he was going to run out shortly after his move. Uh, He presented to the ER and noted that he does have a history of hallucinations, he has a history of suicide attempts, um, and that he wanted to get a refill of his Zyprexa, and that he also was pending a formal psych evaluation, which he needed to get. And the ED doc was aware of the dose and his history and all of that. Uh, With no formal psychiatry training, he decided that he would reduce the dosage of the patient's cyprexa by half uh, from its usual dosage. And the reason that he noted was that he only refilled meds that he was unfamiliar with for usual doses, not for excessive doses like this patient was on. And the patient returned to the ED 72 hours later Uh, Who and was suicidal at that time. He was admitted at that time, but he hanged himself during the admission. Mm. He has now anoxic damage and requires 24-hour care. So in this case, the ED doctor was sued for changing the medications when the patient had been stable on a dose for a long period of time and for not getting a (laughs) psychiatry consult. And... This case uh, was settled, but for $1 million.
0: You know, the, it couldn't be any worse, Malia. Uh, if you're going to hang yourself, do it right. Because the cost <laughs> of the general society of having somebody with poor mental functioning, of course, the question you then a- ask is, how in California can can you tell whether they're brain damaged? You know, but the bottom <laughs> line here is very simple. Um, when you've got somebody who is long term care for the rest of their existence, the costs here could be astronomical. I honestly think a million dollar deal may have been a good way out for the uh, for the defendants a million bucks, try and take care of some human 24 hours a day for a million bucks. It doesn't go that far. You know,
1: Greg, you are such a a tender, you know, sympathetic soul here. You know, we're going to get the letters. I can just see them coming in now. Actually, the emails. Mm -hmm. Malia, tell us what this uh, doctor did wrong here.
2: Uh, So in this case, the The main problem is that he extended out of what we are looking to do in the emergency department. He stepped outside of his role and decided to make psychiatry decisions, changing the doses of known psychiatric meds um, and not involving the specialist that's a known specialist in this area. We wouldn't do that with a surgical patient and decide to do surgery ourselves. We shouldn't do it with psychiatry either.
0: Should he, by the way, have just, if he'd called a psychiatrist, and run by him the current medical uh, doses and asked, can he reduce something like that? That certainly would have covered him much, much better, wouldn't it?
2: Sure. I think it seems like best practice in general with consultants, especially in the emergency department, is to have your consultant see the patient, be involved in their care. The more you can get them involved in your care, the more sort of on the hook they are with you. And so, with psychiatry patients, best practice is to have a psychiatrist evaluate them. But definitely, making decisions without even involving the psychiatrist is not going to work out well.
1: Although yeah, but, you, you know, I'll, I'll go the there. idea, the idea that uh, prescribing a dose that you are not comfortable with does have a certain kind of um, nice ring to it. Uh, However, we know that in in psychiatry, these medications are just titrated to effect. And so that I'm sure that was the argument against this, uh, this, this, uh, physician, but you know, when you first said, uh, he didn't feel comfortable doing it outside the, uh, the usual range. I mean, I, 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 I thought that was kind of nice, didn't win, but kind of nice.
2: Sure. You know- and I think we could sympathize, um, anybody could sympathize with that. I think in this case, uh, it was crucial that the patient had been stabilized on this slightly abnormal dose for a very long time and had mm-hmm. been successful.
0: Yeah. I think that the the uh, thing that frightens me here, and I know there's a lot of our regular listeners who understand the fact getting a psychiatrist to come in is extremely difficult. Now, I don't know what it is in the army situation at hood or Madigan, but can you get a psychiatrist any time of the day or night to come
3: in on this kind of case? Oh, it's easy. Yeah, they run right in. They just yeah,
1: Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. They're going <laughs> to bowl, the bowl you over when they <laughs> run through the door. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They'll like sit-
0: everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting at home dressed, just hoping to be called in on <laughs> this case. Um, I, I, I understand In the best of all worlds, you'd love them to come in and do the hour um, psychiatric exam, have them draw puzzles and pictures and all that sort of stuff. But I I hope that uh, if the patient is not actively psychotic and carries on normal conversation and you call up a psychiatrist for an opinion, I would hope that that would pass muster. Because I'll tell you most of us who are who are listening to this program,
1: we can't get a psychiatrist that easily. We just can't. well, you know I think we understand the uh, the key point in this case. Greg Moore, do you want to have anything to
3: add yeah. here? yeah I think I think the message here is uh, you know you wouldn't say hey, I know you have a appendicitis. I think I'll just go ahead and take you to the OR myself if you can, and it's really a little outside your area of expertise to, communicate with someone else and confirm it's the right thing to do from a practical, maybe jury point of view. I think I'd rather sit in front of a jury and say, you know, this guy told me it was his dose and he was doing great on it. And he just needed me to help him get to the next appointment. So I wrote this big dose cause I believed him and what he was telling me, uh, rather than unilaterally, just decreasing stuff and asking for consequences.
1: Yep. Yep. Okay. Should
3: we move on to the next one?
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. So next case, same sort of theme, um, but in this case, a um, a man uh, with his young wife noticed that since they had moved, they were in the military, that, um, that his wife had become lethargic and depressed, and he had received orders to go elsewhere, and his boss said if he was going to not go, he needed to get a doctor's note to stay back. So he took his wife to the ED. Uh, Where she was in the ED, she was diagnosed with acute delusional psychosis, and the MD initially recommended admission. He spoke with the husband. The husband said, I'll watch her at home over the weekend, and then uh, they decided together that this was probably okay, and even though he had diagnosed psychosis, he decided to prescribe hydroxyzine for the patient over the weekend. Well, over the weekend, you can guess she got worse. Uh, She alternated between outbursts of agitation and then lethargy and catatonia throughout the weekend um, and was violent with her husband, attacking him several times, one time with a closet rod. At one point, the husband went to call 911 uh, after she had an episode of catatonia where he thought she was asleep in the bedroom. Uh, But during that time, she beat uh, her 16-month-old son to death. Mm.
0: Yeah. You have a lot of cheery cases. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I was just going to say somebody's got to defend himself uh, in this case. You know, it's very hard to make the diagnosis of psychosis, active psychosis, which by definition means they're out of touch with reality and may constitute a danger to self or others and then send them home. I think that's a, I think that's a gutsy move.
2: And that was definitely an issue in this case.
1: Well, you know, it's honestly easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. I think most people don't want to have their spouses committed. uh, If they can, if they think that, that, that there's some kind of middle, middle road approach, it just turned out that this was a horrible mistake, but it, you know, it's possible that it could have ended more positively than this. I mean, this was not necessarily kind of like slam dunk predictable. Yeah. Right?
0: I, I, I'm i going to get, I, I just want to make sure that everybody realizes if you don't, if you put down a diagnosis like that and send them home, it, it, things better go well. Cause in general, answering that question on the stand, what is psychosis? Uh, and what do we generally do with people who are psychotic? Uh, we treat, we treat them with antipsychotic medication and usually watch them. And, and, uh, other than that, if you're going to sign them out against medical advice, if this isn't what you want,
3: but that paperwork
0: better be pretty good. Hey, Greg Moore, help us out here.
3: Well, the, it was interesting. This woman, uh, went to trial for murdering her son and was, uh, You know, let off because she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and not guilty via reason of insanity. But I think the first two cases, what I'm taking out of them is, you know, you are a specialist in what you're a specialist in. And uh, although we touch on all the other ones, you got to realize there's a line where you may be overstepping your bounds. Yeah, I think that that's the common point of both of these
1: cases, and I think there are, clearly are some take-home messages here.
3: Yeah, I mean, right. you know, I'll, have a, I'll have a guy come in, and his pressure's high, and his sugar's high, and <clears throat> you, you feel like, well, the answer's going to be, let's up this and lower that. Um, but I will usually try to get a hold of the primary or someone just so that we're all in agreement about what's being done here.
1: Greg, you want to talk about some suicide cases?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Let's. You want some better news, happier news? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, people always worry they're going to send someone out and they're going to commit suicide and they're going to be in trouble for it. And I just uh, – you know, I've, I've got a series of cases here that sort of made me feel a lot better about things. So uh, the first one is Rice Vusasuma, physicians in Ohio. We know and, those people. Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, do you? Is yeah, that the we ones, do. Oh, oh, is that the ones where the yes, residency the, went? exactly, 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 Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the patient and them both had a bad outcome in this one, I guess. But, uh, um, so this is a 35 year old. He gets arrested for a DUI, and uh, when he goes in, we have I've seen this a lot, where you know they're going to go to jail, and they say, "Well, I I'm going to kill myself," and then they don't have to go to jail. But uh, this guy said he had suicidal ideation. In, He was evaluated in the emergency department, and he was felt to be okay. Um, He was – the key word here is evaluated. Uh, He was discharged to a sobering facility, and at the facility he hung himself in the bathroom. And you would think, oh, my gosh, now I'm in trouble. Uh, And they sued. uh, The state sued and said, you know, you didn't evaluate and protect him from himself. Uh, And the defense often in these cases is, you know, I didn't really hurt you. Uh, you hurt yourself. Uh, you and you told me you weren't suicidal, and oh, you know what am I supposed to do? I have to believe you if you tell me something, and that's why I discharged you. And there was a verdict for the defense on this case. That's a common approach in these cases. Is first of all, I didn't hurt you. You hurt yourself, and this is what I had to go on with information. And I can't be an ultimate mind reader for everything in the future. That's sort of the defense that's used.
0: You know, my first case in 1976 had to do with a 19-year-old who, in a panic, um, broke away from his family, uh, was brought back, and they took him to the emergency department, and he went through everything with the— family and signed one of these contracts about I won't kill myself. Uh he goes home, family is with him, he sneaks out at night. Now he's a pilot, uh, um a uh amateur pilot and goes out, steals a plane at the Wayne County uh General Hospital and uh flies it around talking to the tower. About how nobody understands him, including the doctors at the hospital, and and drives the plane nose down right into the center of the of the runway. wow. Uh, and and I had to go to defend the doc who's involved in this. But I think that that approach that the family was with him, they didn't seem so upset. He got away. Um, and basically we said, you know, the cause of this kid's death was the kid himself. The doctor didn't try and kill him. No one tried to kill him, that sort of thing. And, uh, I think a lot of juries do understand the fact that suicide is very difficult to predict, you know, nobody's yet published a scale which is too truly predictive of who's going to kill themselves, but that's you know? one of
1: the reasons that we probably need to err on the side of mitigating risk, I think um the yeah these contracts and stuff like that, you're playing the odds, yeah, of course, but but the consequences of the odds are very very high. it's going to be death or or attempted death kind of thing, so right. it's like given the fact that none of these uh things work very well at all. And frankly, it's been shown that psychiatrists are no better than emergency physicians in predicting this. There's no, there's no science to this. Well, you know, the cases that we remember
0: from our youth, the Marilyn Monroe case, things like that, they all had good psychiatrists. They all had people who theoretically were on top of this issue. The bottom line is we don't know as much about this disease entity as we'd like to, and we, we are not going to be perfect, Rick. It,
1: well, we're just Moore, what, do you, what do you think we should do in these cases? I mean, yeah, I understand the defense. But yeah, the fact uh, is he, he's, he's dead. That, and that was probably not a, g- a very good outcome. Malia, what do you think, too? I,
2: I think that your duty to the patient is to do a fair and full assessment. And you cannot predict all the outcome. Like you said, there is no way that has been discovered yet in modern medicine to predict all of these cases. I think as long as you do a careful evaluation of the patient, a careful medical clearance, which we'll get to in a little bit, and you take care of the patient while they're in your custody to the fullest extent of your ability, you've done what you can do for these patients.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, you guys are spot on. I've done a fair amount of writing on this, you know, violent patients topic and assessment and, uh, Rick, you're totally right. Uh, they've shown that's really psychiatrists are no better predictors than we are. It's just not a science like Greg Henry says as well. It's just not a science. Um, and like Malia says, if you just give it your best good faith effort, um, Things are usually pretty forgiving in the in the courts.
0: You? Uh, I, you know, we all learn something called the sad person scale, and all all these things that were taught to us. And uh, I had a great professor of psychiatry who said, "If we only understood what we were talking about, we'd be dangerous." Yeah. But he says, <laughs> "But he says, I don't. I, I'm supposed to teach you kids these things." But quite frankly, you know, if I walk in the room, it is a gestalt. It is a feeling uh, that pushes you in other directions. um, I'll, I'll tell you a bad case I had. A woman's brought in by her teenage children, and she's an attorney. And she's basically saying, you can't touch me. You can't look at me. And the kids are crying. She's loading a pistol at home. And I committed her against her will, uh, an involuntary commitment. And she's yelling all the way out the door. My lawyers will do this and that. And another thing, you know what? At that moment in time, I said, I've got crying family members who watched her load a gun. I ain't, I'm not going to let her go home. And and of course she's saying, you realize I'm competent. I'm this and that by the very fact that I've got a history that she's loaded a gun, I think I did the correct thing. Yeah. Yeah, and she never came back and sued me, and the kids came back and thanked me. So that's okay.
3: Well, uh, uh, what I usually do is I do the sad person score, and then I get the total. I go back in my office and I review it. I pull out a quarter and I flip it, and then I go back and I say, oh, we're gonna (laughs) let you go home.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs)
3: But I have oh, two more two more cases which kind of uh, provide a little more distinction in this area. The first one's going to be more happy news. Uh, this is Kitchen versus Dargay in Michigan, uh, yep. Greg Greg's home. It's a forty five year old uh, became depressed after a breakup with a boyfriend. Uh, over- took a lot of Vicodin and Xanax, but was okay. Uh, she told the nurse she was suicidal, but when the physician asked her, she said, "No, I'm not suicidal." Uh, because of the nurse story, he called a social worker who evaluated, and she told the social worker, I'm not suicidal. And, but the next day, she was discharged after that evaluation. And next day, she went home and told her daughter, I want to kill myself. And the daughter didn't do anything. And then she hung herself and killed herself. And so then there was a lawsuit against the physician and social worker from the prior day saying, you know, you should have committed me. And the defense was, again, always – Uh, I did not hurt you. You hurt yourself. And then the second part was, you know, I evaluated. You told me you weren't going to hurt yourself. A social worker came in. You told them you weren't going to hurt yourself. You know, how can you expect me to predict and read your mind in the future? I need to believe what you tell me. And that kind of plays good to juries. And there was a defense verdict. This is hard, though, because um –
1: if you were truly suicidal, would you tell somebody you're suicidal? It's like, if you say you're suicidal, that's kind of like a call for help. Um, but if you were definitely going to do it kind of thing, and somebody dragged you into the emergency department, you, you, you wouldn't be broadcasting this to anybody. You'd go home and do it. So it's kind of like you're, 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 you're you're damned. If you do and you're damned if you don't. You
0: don't. Yeah. I, I, I always had this service you could call in psychiatric outreach, community help outreach. Oh, I know where this is
1: going. I know where this is going.
0: Yeah. There was never a psychiatrist who came in. It's one of the people who came in and they did their evaluation and called up the psychiatrist. And a couple of times I disagreed. They were, they wanted to send the patient home and I said, you know, I love you. You're great guys. Thanks for coming in. You know, thanks for playing. But the patient still didn't seem right to me. And I think what our listeners have to remember is if you're the doc in charge whose name's on the bottom of that form, they can be advisory to you, but you're still the guy who's got the insurance policy and the responsibility to the patient. And I, I just don't want all of our people thinking, eh, I've called somebody else in, there's no problem for me. That's
3: not the case. Yeah, that's, that's a big that, mistake. That's such yeah. an uh, amazingly good point. And that's what I preach to residents too. You don't just pass the baton. That's not adequate. You need to assess yourself and get a feeling. Uh, you can't just hand it off to a social worker. One one of the things that I used to worry about earlier in my career is, is this going to hold up a non-physician evaluating and me basing my decision on a non-physician's assessment? And, uh, you know, I used to think, oh, I got to get a psychiatrist. I can't just have a social worker. Um, but when we go back to standard of care, it's like what a reasonable person does in the same situation. And that's how it's done everywhere. It's a social worker, usually not a, not a psychiatrist. So I've never seen a case where they say, Said, oh you should have gotten someone with more expertise in my case ready for another one yep okay this provides a little distinction of, of what you have to do to get these defense verdicts rolling your way in a suicidal assessment and this is keith versus samaritan in oregon and it's a 20 year old guy he's brought into the ed for decreased level of consciousness And the ED staff was told that the patient drank alcohol, took sleeping pills and was upset about a girlfriend. And so he was watched through the night without any problems and he was discharged the next morning, uh, very sleepy, but he was allowed to just sleep in the ER until he woke up and then he was allowed to go home. And the following day he shot himself in the chest and died. Now the distinction here and why they sued was, you did not do a mental health evaluation on me You knew that I had taken more alcohol and drugs than I should have. You never asked me, was I suicidal? You didn't do an evaluation. And so this one ended in a confidential settlement. And I think the distinction is if you do a good faith evaluation and make the wrong decision uh, and the patient hurts themselves, you didn't hurt them, juries are going to be favorable. But if you don't do an evaluation you're very likely to be liable,
1: Malia, what do you think?
2: Uh, I it, similarly, I think just switching gears sort of to the next the next topic that we're going to discuss that ties into this as well. the the patients that really keep me up at night or that I worry about are not so much the ones that I get to do that detailed assessment on because, like we've already discussed, those ones, you're relatively protected. It sounds like the court supports you. Everybody supports you if you just try your best and you do a good job. Uh, I worry about, and especially this varies state to state, but uh, depending on your local sort of uh, setting, I worry about those patients that I don't get to complete my assessment and, and they're lost or they elope, which is a frequent thing that happens for us. Um, so if, if it's okay with you, I'm going to bridge into this this next case, which ties that in as well. Go for it. So this case is Harvey versus neighbor. Um, And in this case, there was a 30 year old female. She came into the ED for uh, evaluation of a psychiatric problem. Uh, The nurse evaluated and actually said, "I, I can't determine whether she's suicidal. So she went and got a physician and the physician came in and evaluated the patient. But during it, he got an emergent phone call. I'm not sure if you guys get the luxury of carrying phones that are ringing all shift, but I've worked at places that have. So he got one of these phone calls and he stepped out to take the call. Uh, During this, the patient believed, well, I guess I'm discharged. And so she stood up and left the room. She actually was pursued uh, into the hospital garage by hospital personnel saying that she needed to come back. And she, it's unclear uh, based on the testimony, but jumped or fell out of the parking garage off an upper story and, and died. So How many pla- people
1: do you know accidentally fall off a parking garage?
2: <laughs> well, <Wow. You know?
1: laughs> it happens all the time here. You know? Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I think that there were some uh, there was some alternans in the history there between in the court documents, but it seems like most likely was a jump, but. Um, So in this case, they alleged negligence to the hospital staff and they alleged specifically to the physician for not fully evaluating this patient. And they said, it's your fault. If you had evaluated this patient, you would have caught that they were suicidal. You would have put them on a hold and kept this patient there.
0: Yeah, I I think we've talked a lot uh, over the years here about elopement. Uh, When you walk in to the room and the gown is sitting in the middle of the stretcher, and uh, you look around, there's no patient, it ought to trigger in you an elopement uh, protocol, i.e., you check the waiting room, you, you call, you make this, that, and another thing. At least in this case, somebody saw them leave and security pursued them. Now, uh, the biggest problem is when they're awake, alert, and, and relatively competent, how much leeway does security have to enforce bringing them back? Exactly. That, this is the question. I'm out here now. I'm feeling okay. I'm going home. And by the way, I'm awake, alert, oriented, know who, what time it is, who everybody is. And if you touch me, uh, that's, that's called a battery. And uh, I, think, I think these are very difficult cases. I mean, I'm sorry that she jumped off the parking deck, but how much were they trying to do to restrain her to do this, that, and the other thing? Because you as the doctor cannot be running out of the department after these people. You can't do it.
2: Agree, and in fact, this, in this case, they specifically asserted that the physician also had a duty to his other patients in the department, and part of his duty was answering that phone call about another critically ill patient.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, if any dollars change hands here, I would be very disappointed.
3: Yeah, they, they do. They do. The dollars change hands, but uh, I have not seen a case where the physician answers for it. It'll be the hospital. Uh, you know, your employees didn't stop them, your employees didn't catch them. It, I don't see the physician getting nailed in these elopement cases. It's more the institution.
1: Yep. Well, you know, one of the details here is just how far into this assessment did this person go? Did they have the time to get a sense that this patient may be problem uh, uh, suicidal? So uh, in all of these summaries, we don't really get to see that level of detail. But I think Fundamentally, there are the principles that have been outlined here that um, you can just do so much, and if they go and you make a reasonable effort, it sounds like they made a reasonable effort, they went after her uh, kind of yeah. thing, um, yeah. and I think maybe in a sense of desperation— that she jumped off. Maybe if they had not run after her, maybe they would have. Maybe the outcome oh. would have been different. Yeah, I never thought of that. They chased <laughs> yeah. her off the roof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that or she looked at the bill and decided
0: it was just easier to kill herself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 All right, guys, where are we now?
0: We're down to uh, suicide oh. transfers.
3: Oh, oh, here's one. I don't know how it works uh, at your various places. Uh, we don't do a lot of psych admissions. Like at my hospital, they'll admit the active duty troops. But like if their spouse comes in or their child comes in, they go somewhere else. And I often hear uh, that the minute they hit the door at the other hospital, they were released. Um, So here's a case of Jenkins versus Evangelical Hospitals. uh, And this uh, guy was evaluated at a hospital. He was found lying face down in a muddy puddle. And uh, he was kind of halfway undressed. And um, his family said that he'd been walking in front of cars and talking about death and a lot of paranoid ideation. And he came in, he was intoxicated. He had a drug screen positive for marijuana. And the emergency physician and social work did a good evaluation, and they said this guy needs to be held against his will. And he was held until his alcohol was normal, and then he was transferred to another facility. And when he got to the other facility, he was – Um, he was again, um, evaluated and immediately released. (laughs) And, um, as soon as he got released, he went home and shot himself in the head and died. So of course, then they sue the first physician at the first place saying, you know, you didn't, you didn't get him admitted and he went home and killed himself and it's all your fault. And then the defense was, you know, I evaluated him. I safely transferred him and I can't be responsible for what happens later. And there was a defense verdict here. So I just, I put that out because I get in that situation. It's like, man, they need to come in. And then I hear later the other hospital, just let them go. Um, But I feel more comfortable that, uh, you know, I'm going to be protected. Well, you can't be
0: expected to think ahead and know what another set of doctors are going to do under a different set of circumstances. The patient might by the time they're reevaluated look worse, or consequently they may look better. Uh, this wasn't an EMTALA case, was it, Greg? No, no, this wasn't. Okay, because because uh, it's always a problem too when you send them to another institution. Why did you send them? Does your hospital not have in in hospital
3: beds? I mean, what was the reason for the transfer? Yeah. Well, uh, on this one, I don't know for sure. I don't. I just probably they didn't have the facilities. I know we'll often transfer because, you know, we just don't admit non-military people for the most part. And uh, it's hard for them to be successful on an Amtala s- suit against the federal government itself.
0: Well, <laughs> the, you know, what I always love is the federal government has so set it up <laughs> that under Federal Tort Claims Act, the federal government has to give you the permission to sue them. Yeah. Uh, I wish the rest of us could do that, but uh, I don't know. You, you do see these cases. Does uh, Fort Hood have a uh, involuntary unit, Malia?
2: Um, well, not so much a unit, but yes, they do. They do involuntary admissions and voluntary admissions there.
1: And do you make a distinction between active duty and dependence? Uh,
2: it is a murky distinction, but they don't have capability for pediatric patients. So that's the major reason that they'll be transferred elsewhere.
1: Yeah, because it's interesting because I think I just intuit, Greg, that uh, Greg Moore, that if you uh, transferred a psych patient and there was a problem and they did uh, have a uh, have a bad outcome at the other end, they could say to you, uh, well, what, what was the reason you transferred you to, you admit some, but you don't admit others. And, and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, well, well, why? And it's the, the, why is not going to be a very good. Why?
3: You know, so, you know, so a lot of times what happens is you call up there and it's like, Hey, we got five beds. Sure. We'll admit Mrs. Smith, uh, wife of, colonel smith uh, <laughs> yes but but you know if general it, colonel and above get yeah, 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 <laughs> right. yeah right but uh you know if they're down to where they got one or one or two beds left then they have to save them for you know the soldiers so that it's kind of that's that's the reason you uh, know there's ha- this
1: thing that happens in the emergency department frequently where you're sent a patient from a doctor's office or to uh, or similar and they say I- i'd like you to do a uh, CBC on this person because they have belly pain or something like that. And um, you evaluate them and it's quite clear they don't need the whatever the test was that that doctor wanted done, they don't need it kind of thing, or they don't need to be admitted or something to that effect. And I think that we have to be doing the right thing here. And if they want a CT on the head of a two-year-old who is PCAR negative, that CT should not be done just because the doctor at the other hospital requested it. If they want, they could have sent the person directly to the uh, radiology department said that doctor could have ordered it. But once you've got your name on the chart that you've ordered this test, then you've got to defend what was the medical indications for it. And I think that uh, we have to be uh, aware and willing to know that once that, once that patient is ours, the responsibilities are ours and the decisions are ours. And yes, we can take into consideration what that other doctor requested. But if it's something that's not going to be helpful, maybe harmful, then I think that you just don't do the test. You call up the doctor and say, listen, this person's feeling a lot better now. I feel the belly. There's, I don't think we need, or felt the head. There's the, the, the kid's acting normally, yeah. Only th- throwing up seven times. Uh, you know, it's like you, you have, it's your call. The one that I don't,
3: the one I don't enjoy is when they send them in and say, uh, you go to the ER and get a lumbar puncture and tell them I said, so (laughs) Exactly, Exactly. that's
0: always useful. But in some towns, um, having been to Colleen, Texas, uh, I'm not sure there's much else in the town, but the military, I mean, there's the usual, the, the road leading up to the front gate has a fast food places, tattoo parlors. (laughs) Uh, I, pawn shops and and uh, the usual things you find in military
3: towns. They, but I they named fix- they named that road Greg Henry Road. Now, yeah, did you know?
0: Yeah, that? I'm sure they <laughs> did. But I,
3: but when
0: you're looking down there, I bet the military hospital at the base probably has a lot more facilities than the one in town, doesn't it, Malia?
2: Uh, it's a. We actually have a beautiful new hospital, but there are several surrounding facilities that also support us. And there's a, you know, a level one trauma center down the road that we work very closely with as well. So there are facilities in the area. Although I'm sure, like most of the country, psychiatric beds are always seem to be full. So
1: yes, always full. Let's move on to uh, medical clearance.
2: Sure. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this section. Uh, and I think it's something that comes up a lot because we're always, I, depending on where you work, there's always sort of a protocol or a different uh, way to approach this medical clearance. And a lot of times we kind of blow it off. So here's a couple cases where you either should or shouldn't. Uh, The first case I have for you is Jackson versus East Bay hospital. And this, this case is a little bit of a saga, but in this case, Mr. Jackson went to the mental health department and said, I think I need to see a psychiatrist. I have a history of a psychotic disorder and I'm not doing well lately. Uh, he had borderline, um, uh, developmental delay and a history of pedophilia as well. Uh, they, um, instructed Mr. Jackson that before they could help him, they needed to get him medically cleared and make sure that none of his issues were medical. So, of course, he goes to his local ED to get medical clearance so that he can get psychiatric care. At this point, just planning to get outpatient care. Uh, they did. And he told them that he was kind of dizzy and hallucinating some and, you know, some very vague complaints. They did some lab testing and they basically said, we don't. We think this is all your psychiatric issues. Go back and see them. So he went back and shortly returned two days later to the ER with some more vague complaints. They again evaluated him, this time with an EKG, a urine drug screen, an ABG, and some other kind of general lab work. The urine drug screen did uh, was positive for tricyc- tricyclic antidepressant clomipramine, which was the one that the patient was descri- was prescribed and he was taking. Um, and at this point, his uh, symptoms were worsening outpatient. He kept bouncing back and forth between psychiatric and ED. So I think there were four visits total to the ED. And then on the last one, they said, well, let's go ahead and admit you. Clearly, your psych issues aren't getting taken care of. So he gets admitted to the psychiatric hospital where uh, he subsequently has a cardiac arrest and dies from a lethal dysrhythmia caused by a toxic level of his TCA, clomipramine. Wow. Um, In the the course, he was given multiple other—there were several times where he was evaluated, given kind of Haldol, Haldol, and Benadryl. Everything was pointing to that he was psychiatric. So the main point here that we want to make is don't miss delirium. Don't miss these other vague complaints that they're giving you, or consider when you do a test, such as a drug screen, consider the results of that test. Here, the drug screen was done several times, and the the patient, each time they said— oh, well, I guess he's supposed to be on that. No one ever considered the side effects of the medication that he was prescribed.
0: And did they do a qualitative or a quantitative test? Because if they did a quantitative test, they should be able to tell them that they're toxic from the medication. Shouldn't they, Malia?
2: Sure. And I think that the availability of that test varies institution to institution. In this, they actually did specify that nobody ever got a level of the test. They just said in a general urine dark screen, oh, it appears the patient's on this medication, which whatever, he's on this medication.
1: You know, it's interesting because uh, Greg Moore and Greg Henry and Rick Bucata are of the generation where we used to see tricyclic overdoses all the time. And they were very deadly. And it was like, here is this antidepressant. Uh, that will, kill, will That can kill you. Um, but
3: there they were amazing stu- cases. Amazing
1: yeah. cases. Yeah. <laughs> you know they don't give that stuff out anymore. There's that. That's like it's it's, and so to see a case more uh, contemporaneously that is a tricyclic overdose or a toxicity, I'm sure that a lot of the uh, emergency physicians out there now who are recent graduates or y- are younger have never seen a case in their life. And so you'll never make a diagnosis that you're not thinking of as a a potential. And so there, there may have been other tip offs to this. I mean, was there any kind of sinus tachycardia going on in these cases? Um, you know, what, what did, what, what did the QRS look like if you, but if you don't think of it, you don't, you, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to you that the guy's got 105 pulse.
2: And that's exactly what it seems like in this case when you review them looking back, all the pieces were there, but nobody put the puzzle together in this case.
1: Very interesting case.
2: Um, So next case, medical clearance. So this is anonymous versus anonymous uh, from out of Massachusetts. Uh, This was a 37-year-old woman. She was brought in by EMS to the ER, reported taking 20 Darvon and 12 Vicodin. Uh, And she was sat in her room for quite a while. She never had her belongings checked. And it came out in court later that the whole time she was continuing to overdose on these medications while she was in the ED because she had the bottles with her Um, and uh subsequently she did have a bad outcome. She actually overdosed and uh died from this. So the court alleged later that she wasn't lavage, didn't get charcoal, didn't get a drug screen for opiates, was kind of the hinge point of this one. Um, and was later found unresponsive once she was transferred to the psychiatric court. This case was settled for four hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars.
0: By the way, was this a fairly recent case? In no Boy, way. It can't be. Yeah. Because first of all, giving you <laughs> charcoal ain't going to change yeah. the outcome in this case. Kingsford uh, was my brand. Yeah, Kingsford. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand that, Rick. But the um, the problem with all of these cases, and by the way, it's notice It's interesting to note that the medication she were was on probably aren't that effective anyway for anything. Uh, but they're good to
1: kill you, I guess. I guess that's how they work. Well, we are also of the generation where we remember Darvon, um, and ultimately those drugs uh, went away. But they were huge, huge, huge sellers. Uh, but I think generically uh, there are uh, things to be learned from this case, that's for sure. And um, these medical clearances, we we often kind of take them for – uh, the psych won't talk to them unless we do a medical clearance. And there's all of this literature that says, well, just do a good history and physical. Don't, you don't need to get all of these tests. And, But a good history and physical does not necessarily measure what's going on in your EKG kind of thing. or your. And it would be nice to know kind of like, uh, I guess a drug screen is always included in those. So I shouldn't be too uh, too critical of uh just do a good history and physical.
0: Well, part of this, though, is uh, when we're we're looking at these patients that say just clear for psych. Yeah. I hated that when that came up on the uh, on the uh, diag- or the diagnose or chief complaint line. Clear for psych. Clear for what? Because all I can usually say is, you don't have anything that'll kill you in the next fifteen minutes. Getting here to the floor. But if we actually want to medically clear people, it's more complex than than everyone thinks. You do have to examine them. You do have to take their pulse. You do have to look at a few things. And Rick, you and I remember when, remember when Quaaludes were big? Uh, Those things could lay in your stomach for a while, then all come back immediately. Did the patient need to go to psych? Well, they needed to come into the hospital but we have get people up on the floor for two hours and then get a call that they've collapsed. And I think that, uh, uh, it's always tenuous when you admit for psych they're okay right now, but you know, they may have something hiding. And by virtue of being a psych patient, they may not be telling you the truth about anything.
3: Yeah, well, to- totally good points. And, and like, uh, yeah, yeah. The first case too is like you know, uh, crazy people act crazy, uh, but that doesn't mean that's the whole story too. You know, right. and you might not be getting the whole story. But yeah, I agree with you totally.
1: Do yeah. you guys so, have any protocols at your hospitals that are? Because many hospitals do, and they were often the the source of criticism by emergency physicians that we don't need to do all of this. Do you have protocols at either of your hospitals that this is considered to be a psych medical clearance? Uh, what did it
3: consist of? Well, and then whether you should comply with it or don't you tell me what to do. I guess my, my two viewpoints on that are is if you're a consultant and I'm asking you to help me and you say I need this in order to help you, I'm happy to give it to them. They're trying to help me. You need this uh, serum porcelain level. That's what you need to feel safe with helping me. I don't have a big, uh, I I just don't have a big protocol with it, but I mean problem with it. But um, the other thing is um, here, there's a lot of leverage, you know? Yes, I will accept this patient for admission when you get a pregnancy test, a urine, yes. mm-hmm. you know, it's like, what's best for the patient? The best thing for the patient is to get over there. And if that's what I got to do to get them over there, then I don't have a problem doing it. I
0: always I always remember the discussions that would go on. um, You call the medicine service and they'd say they're crazy, aren't they? And I'd say, well, that's one of their problems. And if you called psych, they'd say they're full of drugs and alcohol, aren't they? You know, uh, (laughs) call somebody else. Well, we yeah. need a service that does both crazy and drunk and full of pills. And that's called the emergency department <laughs> and okay. until you've sorted the deal out. Um, I just I, I used to get upset about the fact they wouldn't take him. You know what? They're probably better off with me uh, until it gets sorted out simply because as soon as you get to psych, they shrink you and yeah. the nurses think differently up there. They really do think differently, and and I think it's fair for us to be sort of the un, unbiased uh, a decider of where
1: which service they ought to go to. Hey guys, uh, we have about uh, twenty minutes, twenty two minutes, and you've got a bunch of really uh, interesting things here. There are two options: we can pick and choose, or we can save some from for a later date um so your call
3: greg Moore, greg malia we'll do either one i would kind of defer yeah. to you
2: yeah well, well i i, I,
3: really I don't interested. really know
1: i don't know the specifics of these cases so uh, uh, in terms of the uh we we can
3: cut this out i mean i can talk freely and you can always cut this out later right no,
1: we don't cut anything out here. We Uh-oh. don't do any. That costs money to have editing. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's... You know, we have no, no editing here. This is... No. Uh, listen, why don't you just kind of... You want to summarize some of this stuff on the um, the battery and false imprisonment? Um, let's,
2: let's those do ones the, are that. pretty interesting. Perhaps we can kind of summarize some of the the safely restraining and then kind of go to the... That, yeah, that your call.
3: are call. Kind of interesting go there. I think the next case is impressive uh, that you had on the medical clearance. If you did that real quick,
2: okay. okay. Last case on medical clearance.
3: Just because of just because of the bottom line result of the case.
2: Sure. So this case uh, was a 43-year-old paranoid schizophrenia. and I think it kind of this loops together a lot of the points we've discussing been discussing. He had a history of diabetes as well. He presented to the ER. Uh, Before his evaluation, he got completely naked and started dancing around, so they called the police, and the patient was arrested for indecent exposure. They scheduled him for a mental health exam in two days, and he was incarcerated in the meantime. He uh, refused to communicate to anybody his health issues, and on the second day of his incarceration, he was found dead in his cell, and the cause of death was diabetic ketoacidosis, so DKA. And the alleged thing was that we that they didn't do any medical screening and the defense was basically, well, you know, we couldn't we didn't ever get a chance. And he didn't tell us that he was diabetic. So in the uh, case, go ahead. This case had several unknown sediments, but it was a twenty eight point five million dollar verdict against the jail medical contractor.
3: Mm-hmm. And the rest
2: was unknown. So yeah. do, you guys have,
3: do you guys ever have these agitated attention? gathering difficult lobby patients and then someone says, Hey, I'll just take them away to jail. And you go, well, sure, go ahead. Just take them away. You know, yeah, but yeah. you got to be careful. You got to find be
1: a mental mistake. I mean, the, this person is naked and uh, the solution is send them to jail. Uh, you know, I think that that that's, you know, obviously you're a huge red flag. This patient needs to be sedated, evaluated kind of thing. Um, they're obviously not in uh in control of their mental uh, faculties here. Sure, no, yeah. I think
0: I think that uh, you continuously hear on the on the news, and uh, L.A. County has got to be one of the centers of this in America. The number of people that the the law dragnet picks up, who have psychiatric problems, health problems, behavior problems, and who knows, maybe their behavior problem is actually their, their diabetes at that moment in, t- in time. If I was running a jail, my threshold to send people over to the emergency department would be very, very low because the jailers are not equipped uh, to tell all of those things apart. We can't tell all of them apart a lot of times. I wouldn't want to be the jailer who's yeah, but- got
3: to make mental status decisions.
1: This is pretty egregious case though, I think.
3: Um, I think yeah. so too. Yeah. But have you guys been in ERs where there's all this agitation? And someone says, well, I'll, I'll just take them away. And you feel no. like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> no, because <laughs>
1: no, we, 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 we were in charge of the ERs and then, and, and that would just be, you would, you would have to have your head examined to do that. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, I would, I would propose that uh, we have a couple more little sections of uh, restraint misadventures, and uh failure to to warn people at risk that we could finish up with. What do you sure think? sure? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It, it's your call. You you're yeah. you're running a show here. We're
1: just, you know, bystanders in this thing here. Well yep. go for it, Malia. The, the
2: so show. so we have a couple of cases on restraints, but the underlining factor is gonna be if you're gonna restrain somebody, do it safely, take it very seriously be careful when you're doing it. Uh, the first case is a patient who actually this occurred on the psychiatric wing, but just an example case for us, Gaza V uh, versus Pima County. And this was out of Arizona. This is a 32 year old female. She was admitted to the psychiatric wing. She became violent. She was restrained. They held her face down for 15 to 30 minutes while they were straining her. And you can guess that she had a respiratory arrest, uh, followed by death. And this county settled in this case for $105,000, and then there was a confidential settlement with the security company as well.
1: Yeah, that's that, you know, that guy who was uh, selling illegal cigarettes in New York City who they held down, and the thing was, everybody put on their t-shirts, I can't breathe, because they they smothered that fellow too. Oh, Oh, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. How about the next one?
2: um and next one is doe versus abc ambulance so in this case a 32 year old schizophrenic patient actually threatened to kill his psychologist and so he was involuntarily admitted and during the course of this he was put in four point restraints with chemical sedation attached to a gurney on a backboard uh and then turned upside down same thing violent patient he was spitting at everybody so they put a towel over his mouth and then they covered up uh, his, the entire process with a sheet to kind of quiet him down and just let him rest a little bit. Uh, he complained of the inability to breathe, and then subsequently had, um, had of course, hypoxia and uh, asphyxiation and an arrest.
0: I hope, I hope that this is stopped around the country. The, all you got to do is put a little surgical mask on them, so that when they spit, it just comes back into their face. But to actually occlude their airway, I, I don't understand where that's ever been taught as a way of doing business. Well, I the other thing
1: saw that is restraining yeah. people uh, on their abdomen is that uh, can be dangerous business, especially, especially when they would have this thing where they would have the ankles uh connected to the wrists where I don't know what they call that um a oh, hogtie right hogtie right well and so your full body weight is laying lying on your chest and you just can't breathe and so they would people pe- put people in ambulances this way and they would suffocate because they couldn't couldn't breathe because they couldn't lift up their their body weight to uh, to expand their chest uh, i think well, everybody knows not to do that now and the risks associated with that but i think restraining somebody, uh, in a, uh, you know, face down position has certain, you know, uh, inherent risks.
3: Well, one little, I got a couple things to say. Uh, one was on this one, the award was $2 million, not a hundred thousand. So it was uh significant, but, uh, one thing I used to, I spent years at Maricopa County in Phoenix, and I got to see a lot of violent behavior and restraints. And, uh, you know, one guy said, Hey, uh, I don't care if you restrain me, I'm gonna eat myself out of these restraints. And I went back an hour later and the, the restraints were shredded. He'd chewed himself out of them and ran away. And But I thought he deserved to be free. He was fine, he was functioning at a very he, high level. He earned, he he, earned it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and exactly. Another, I remember this woman, uh, and she kept reaching over to her shoulder and biting like quarter-sized chunks out of her own skin on her shoulder and then spitting them into the air. Um, so what I started doing was putting a soft, uh, like a, putting a Philadelphia collar on these people too, because it doesn't restrict their airway, but it takes that ability to eat yourself, uh, or to eat your restraints off. And I, I started doing that. Like Greg was saying, besides the, the mouth cover,
1: yep. when, when you were at Maricopa, did you ever get to talk to Joe Arpaio? No, I
3: didn't. I oh, didn't. okay. All right. Oh, Sheriff, <laughs> the sheriff, yeah. right? Sheriff, sheriff Joe, you know, Sheriff uh, Joe. okay. His office was right across the street though. It was very kind of fam- very yeah. famous.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, that's that that is a one of the notorious hellholes of the United States. I've known many people who worked there. I noticed, Greg you made a comment about the man in flames. I'm sure you had the same case here that I had where they hadn't checked the pockets. The guy got a hold of his lighter. <laughs> right? And, uh, and lit his vest. So the nurse comes in and there are flames dancing yeah. on the chest. Nice. Uh, this is this is not. A, if you're going to put somebody in restraints, you at least ought to check and see if they've got a weapon, they've got a knife, they got a this or a that. Yeah. And uh, the burning, uh, we had the exact same case at the University of Michigan. This must have been thirty years ago, but uh, he did the exact same thing. They strapped him down, put the chest, uh, piece on him. And two minutes later, uh, flames are coming everywhere. And then of course he inhales the flames, uh, and burns his, his, uh, his upper trachea. I mean, it was just a mess. It was a terrible case.
3: Well, the, the one I was going to talk about the same thing, the guy pulls his cigarettes and lighter out and people (laughs) around the corner and they come back and he's on flames and he can't get away. Um, but that one came out as a defense verdict again, same kind of thing. Hey, he did it to himself,
0: you know. Yep, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what happened in this case too. And I thought, you know, we may be a little bit culpable here in that in somebody who's acting a little crazy not to take their. After all, if they had a gun, we'd take that away. Uh, yeah, If we had a knife, we'd take that. We probably ought to take away their lighters. Yeah, too. I think
1: that that may be a case of good lawyering uh, to get those people off because
3: uh, that was <laughs> definitely a hazard. Right. I agree with you. I agree with you. I guess uh, we don't probably – we can if you want later, but we don't really need to talk about the Tarasov duty to warn. I don't oh, God.
0: Tarasov has been – We've, has we've been done that reaffir- for days. We've but done a lot of it. We okay, have, there's a recent case that has reaffirmed off. and uh, you know I think the bottom line here is if you've got somebody who's a known threat to others, notify the cops and let them know. So, uh, we,
3: so I'll, I'll let Malia that we have a couple cases though that just you know that bring it home. They're yeah, real. we lucky. have we have time. Yeah. yeah, let's do a couple where, you know, we know about Terasoft, but then do you really have to worry about it? And I think Malia has a couple of cases that say, yeah, you do need to worry about it.
2: So here's one. This patient, uh, this is actually a very recent case, um, and this patient was a very reasonable person, but had you know, sort of a reasonable person, who had gone in twice to the ED and reported that he had thoughts of killing his wife, but then he kind of would backpedal later and said, no, I think he was. it's under control. I can control this urge. Um, I'm going to get follow-up. And so after his second visit, he was released after backpedaling similarly, similarly during the visit. And he went home and suffocated his wife and his one-year-old daughter and stabbed his 13 year old daughter to death. And as if that isn't enough for the case there, here's where it just goes into weird crime stuff. He put them in a bedroom and continued to live with them for two weeks in the house until, uh, somebody else called and said, can you check on them? And then the patient subsequently killed himself, uh, during that standoff.
1: (laughs) What case is that You're on the list that you have? Because my sister who does our notes will probably want to look that up. Is that McGrath versus Barnes hospital? No, the, that was going to be no. my next
2: one. It's an anonymous versus anonymous, North Carolina. Well, it's
1: kind of hard to look up the anonymous. <laughs> versus anonymous hard to case, look up. But okay, yeah. You know, okay.
2: um, but that case uh, was a settlement for 11.5 million. Ooh. So in this case, it, It came up, you know, even though it seemed like a casual threat, even though he backpedaled, it was their duty. They should have let the wife know at least that that had come up at some point. She had to have some kind of a safer plan for her and the kids that he was still living with.
0: So you got to comment on McGrath? Because I think that's an interesting case as well.
1: Uh, 19 is, uh, we got McGrath versus uh, Barnes Hospital. Barnes Hospital. Yeah.
2: Sure. So, that- so somewhat of a similar case. So this is uh, a case out of Missouri. And in this case of paranoid schizophrenic, uh, he'd been treated and several times during it, he said he had thoughts of stabbing his mother with, with a kitchen knife. Uh, but he said this all the time, he'd never done it. And so they never attempted to warn his parents, but the night that they <laughs> released him from the inpatient facility, he indeed went home and stabbed both of them. He killed his father, severely injured his mother. And uh, the surviving mother then goes and sues the hospital for <coughs> her injury as well as her husband's death, and um, and sued them for failure failure to warn or fail to uphold that duty, despite the fact that this he had a history of violence and a long history of mental illness, but this new latest threat had not been communicated to them, and they were still on the hook for that. Uh, and the hospital did pay out two million dollars for that.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think it's understand they don't necessarily necessarily have to chase down the wife, uh, the other person. If they talk to the police about this, then they've, then they've transmitted or communicated. You need to contact the family to deal with these issues. It's when they tell nobody that they've got a problem, that's where the problem
1: lies. Well, Greg Moore, uh, what do you think you, you tell the intended victim or do you go through a, a, a intermediary where the police may screw this up?
3: They might forget or something like that. Well,
1: How, if you go what? back, if you,
3: if you go back and look at the classic Terasov, that when the when the psychologist was told I might kill, or I'm going to kill my girlfriend, he called the police, and the police interviewed the guy and mm-hmm. released him. Right, and, st- and still the psychologist answered for it. So. I know from that classic case, I'm not necessarily off the hook just by telling the cops or telling, unless you really warn the specific person. Yeah, uh, I think that's the point here. um, Yeah.
1: Because that was about, most people don't know the little details, although we've talked about it, the fact fact that the um, school cops did pick this guy up and talk to him. Yeah. UCLA, UCLA
0: or whatever
1: it
3: was. Yeah. UCLA. I think it was. Yeah. yeah, So, uh, so I try to directly, uh, let the person know that there's been this threat against you. If I, if I, now it doesn't follow. Like if somebody says I'm going to kill someone at the post office, you know, it's not specific enough. How can you warn the entire postal service? You know, but if it gets any kind of specific, then you should warn those specific people. Good points.
1: I think that uh, – abs- uh, I think that that really is a unique uh, point that basically we're not off the hook by telling others as reflected by the Tarasov case actually.
3: Now, this this Tarasov doesn't follow in all states. I mean it, it's uh – you know, uh, about a third of the states, it's mandatory. A third of the states say, well, you can tell on them. You can tattletale if you want to, but you don't have to. Some say you don't have to do any warning. But uh, I can't list every state off the top of my head. So wherever I practice, I just warn. I just warn. Rather be safe than sorry. Well, I
1: guess right. we're, we're so familiar with HIPAA and we're and so unfamiliar with Tarasov that we assume that we can't tell anybody about anything. You can't, you know, because it's a HIPAA violation. Uh, And so this is a clear um, uh, condition where that doesn't, uh, should not apply. And and I I agree, when when in doubt, if you're with regard to state law, we don't care about that. And the only issues that it's kind of interesting about, reporting uh, people who have uh, seizures and lapses of consciousness. Like Greg points out, in California, we're obligated to report that to the uh, DMV. But in Hawaii, you're specifically not allowed. Isn't that true, Greg? You're not allowed to uh, report seizures to the DMV in Hawaii?
3: Right. So it varies. Uh, And that one, you can feel comfortable in any situation following the state law. One, One person explained to me that state law trumps HIPAA. Whatever they like, if California really? says, yeah, they said we don't care about like California says we don't care about privacy. If they have a seizure, you report them to us, and you're going to be protected. So I've kind of always practiced uh, state law of trumps HIPAA. You know, that's kind of
1: how I. I do thought it. I thought federal law trumped, uh unless in, the state in law general, was more.
3: general,
0: that's true, Rick. I yeah, thought in general the, in
3: general. And then I'm not I'm not afraid to sit on a stand or go in front of a committee and say, how dare you violate his privacy to try to save someone else's life i i kind of i'm willing to go there it's like especially with the jury look him in the eye would you want me to tell you that fred was going to kill you yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah. hey listen we're kind of
1: getting toward the end here greg do you want to do some lines here before we do that do you guys want to wrap up with any kind of words of final wisdom here
3: I think a lot of these cases are somewhat you may have heard about them, but I think some of the points we want to say is be careful about practicing a specialty that you aren't a specialist in. So try not to step over the line. Uh, if you tie someone down, don't kill them. Um, <laughs> okay, right, let me write that and, down. And, yeah, it's and it, uh, You know, warning people is just not a theoretical legal case. There's real life episodes. And then the good news is, just do a good evaluation and be sincere and try your best on a suicidal patient and you're likely going to be fine you don't have to go home paranoid every night that what if this happens those were kind of some of the points we wanted to make
0: malia
2: and last points for me would just be that on the medical clearance section which is the only one uh left to touch on is that this is you know, we worry about psychiatric patients, but the, actually the people that have a problem from the medical clearance standpoint are usually have an infectious problem or a drug intoxication or withdrawal problem. And so if you pick those two up, which we are good at in emergency medicine, you should be able to kind of mitigate a lot of the risk there.
1: There you go. Gregory, Talking about some wines here.
0: Yeah, I'll just give you one. Uh, and by the way, I'm I, I, yes, just one. By the way, I really have enjoyed this show. This is a duo we got to bring back, Rick. Uh,
1: well, I, you know, they're, if they're you guys are willing. It. Listen, yeah. don't expect sure. us to play your pay your plane fare down there now, uh, Greg Moore to go no, down to no. Texas now. Don't that's not the, you
0: know, you, you can <laughs> yeah. deduct it, but yeah, that's a family visitation thing.
3: Well, uh, well, what about a Greyhound bus? bus? Would a Greyhound bus be okay? Yeah, uh, we'll think about it. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we'll <laughs> the long bus ride. It. I told Malia to do anesthesia, but she just said, no, I'm going to do ER, dad. Before (laughs) you get
1: into wine,
3: I got to tell you, Greg,
1: uh, more that um, I when I see a kid of a doctor go into the same specialty of that doctor, I think it says a tremendous amount about the um, the father or the mother who uh, the the child is emulating in terms of uh, the life that they've led. The messages that they've sent, and you should be very, very proud that your daughter has um, seen you as a role model for which she'd like to uh, copy. Congratulations, oh. my friend.
3: Oh, yes. thank you. That that's amazingly nice. Makes me feel really good.
2: Very well said.
3: <laughs> I want the uh, I want the wine uh, this
0: month to have a little zing to it, and so twenty two dollars a bottle. It's called Ringbolt, uh, R-I-N-G-B-O-L-T, 2014. It's a Cabernet um, and Ringbolt, the winery. It's located in the Margaret uh, River area of Australia. For 22 bucks a bottle, this rivals a lot of the stuff at that same price out of California. And I would recommend everyone try it. A lot of the... Australian wines are now making it into the U.S. market and uh, very high quality,
1: and I would I would suggest this one for anyone. Thank you. Hey, hey listen, didn't you get a, a suggestion from one of our listeners that in the Wall Street Journal, there is a uh, wine that every three months you get 12 bottles of wine, and they were trying to get you to plug that?
0: Yes, yes, they <laughs> were trying to get me to plug that, and the truth of the matter is how wrong can you be if you get 12 bottles, which to me is like a good week, uh, <laughs> and, and you get that once every three months, that's, it's hard to go wrong. I, I, if you look and see, I've looked at that program, by the way, you pay a little more money, but here's the side effect of that. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to listen to your wine shop guy give you hype about anything. They just appear at your door. It's like magic, this America, what a country I mean, wine <laughs> can appear at your door? I love it,
1: yeah, well, it appears at your door for money,
0: yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> but but not so much that uh that even guys
1: like me Rick can af- can afford that. It's not so bad, hey listen, <laughs> thanks very much for uh, preparing this, There's a lot of work went into this, uh, getting, gathering these cases, Malia and uh, Greg, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I'm, uh, I, I do hope that we can do this in the future. No,
3: thank you. Thanks I, so much I, for having I, us.
2: Yeah.
3: And I, I've told you before, but I just appreciate so much what both of you have done for our specialty and education. And, you know, even when I started out, I learned so much from you guys and I really appreciate it.
0: I wish you tell so that much. to our, tell that to our wives. Will you? <laughs> okay. Uh, That's it for the month of November, and so uh, we will see you in our Christmas edition. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
1: Bye for now.